You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Harrison Perkins from Queen's University, Belfast. His paper was entitled an Irish mark on an English gathering, James Usher and the Westminster Assembly. So, ever since his death, James Usher has been regularly cited as a critically significant influence on the Westminster Assembly and the confessional documents it produced. He was the leading theologian of the Reformation in Ireland, first teaching theology at Trinity College Dublin, and later becoming Archbishop of Armagh, the primate of all Ireland. He never actually attended the Westminster Assembly, which makes this an interesting study, to me at least. But at least one 17th century author still claimed that the Westminster Larger Catechism was simply an epitomized version of Bishop Usher's body of divinity. The tradition claiming that Usher left a mark on the Westminster Assembly and its documents, however, has never been demonstrated. So what I hope is my modest thesis is that the Assembly's writings Usher's correspondence and his friendship network all indicate a high probability that the divines appropriated aspects of his theology. This probability does not definitively prove his mark on the assembly, and it shouldn't yet be claimed that Usher was the divine's chief source. Still, Usher had direct connections to many of them. It appears they used his works for their confessional documents, Theologians and politicians linked him to the Westminster Assembly, uh, linked to the Westminster Assembly, gave him distinctly deferential treatment, and he did participate in later work that the Assembly carried on. So first, the first section, Westminster divines regularly cited Usher in their writing in their writings, including those published before, during, and after the Assembly met. These pervasive citations demonstrate a general respect that the Westminster theologians had for Usher as an authority. Second section, a comparison of the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism with some of Usher's works reveals instances where the confession used exact phrasing from the Irish articles and the larger catechism quoted or summarized Usher's body of divinity. And in the last section, the the journals from the House of Commons and the House of Lords shows Usher's remarkable remarkably favorable reception when he returned to London. So just some background, the Westminster Assembly met from 1643 to 52 during political upheaval. Parliament commissioned it as an advisory committee regarding ecclesiastical reform for their three kingdoms. And Usher had come to England in 1640, but was prevented from going back to Ireland when the rebellion of 1641 erupted. He lived the rest of his days in English exile, although exile provided him plenty of opportunities to preach in English pulpits. During the Civil War, Usher's loyalties were stretched 
and divided between the king and the Reformed theology that Parliament's assembly was enshrining. Parliament invited him to attend the assembly as a representative of Oxford University, but these invitations were really more like summons. It wasn't a polite invitation, and they had legal consequences for failure to attend, and yet still Usher's politics outweighed this risk, and he absented he believed, because he believed God appointed the monarch, and the only recourse people had if their king oppressed them was prayers and tears. So a hopeful and optimistic outlook on resistance. Even though his theology was closer to that to, of the assembly than Charles I's supreme religious officer, William Laud, Usher sided with the king, relocating to the royal camp in Oxford. His many friends at the assembly likely felt betrayed by his absence because they had suspected his support uh, in their gathering. And even at that, though, evidence suggests they may not have been satisfied to go without Usher's contributions, even if he refused to be present. So, to look at Usher and his relationship to some of these divines. The documents currently available from the Westminster Assembly did not explicitly cite Usher. But this lack of reference does not mean the divines did not use his work since the early moderns had a penchant for well-intentioned plagiarism. As already noted, Usher's absence may have been a sore spot for many divines who wanted him among their numbers, and mention of his name in public debate in the, the full gathering may not have been ideal. Nevertheless, the divines held Usher in high esteem. At least three participants in the assembly dedicated books to him, and at least 23 contributors to the assembly cited him approvingly in at least 47 of their works. Some works are, I can't find copies actually still available. So that's why I'm saying at least uh, many of the divines corresponded with him before and during the assembly. And Joshua Hoyle and Stanley Gower both formally trained under his teaching, one of them being his personal chaplain. Admittedly, the connections between Usher and contributors to the assembly do not prove they used his theology, but it illustrates that they respected his scholarship, especially given the frequency with which they cited him. So, authors who participated in the assembly cited Usher profusely, again, before, during, and after that they met. These publications span from 1624 into the late 17th century, and the end of that time span relates more to their lifespan than a wane of, of his reputation. Um, the use of his theology was not isolated to one faction of the assembly or limited to one topic. So divines of every ecclesiastical persuasion cited Usher on most major theological issues, including the doctrine of God, worship practices, salvation, uh, eschatology, and perhaps especially church history. So Scottish Presbyterians, English Presbyterians, defenders of prelacy, independents, congregationalists, all leaned on Usher, which demonstrates that he had a very broad appeal. So Scottish minister George Gillespie published a dispute against, against English popish ceremonies in 1637, arguing the Laudian regime imposed Roman Catholic superstition upon the worship in the Church of Scotland, and cited Usher repeatedly. Gillespie had been unwilling to be ordained uh, into the ministry by a bishop, 
which only heightens the significance of these citations, especially given that Gillespie cited him as the Archbishop of Armagh, indicating he would happily side with a prelate when he was not imposing unbiblical ceremony upon his church. Gillespie did not necessarily depend on Usher's full arguments, which is interesting in any of these citations, and it seems he really wanted to indicate he had Archbishop Usher on his side. Francis Chennel, an English Presbyterian and an Independent, both cited Usher uh, in the, I'm sorry, and Thomas Goodwin, Francis Chennel, an English Presbyterian, and Thomas Goodwin, an Independent, both cited Usher in works on the doctrine of God. Uh, Chennel cited him twice against the authority of popes and to establish that the ecumenical councils held an important role in establishing the right view of the Trinity. Thomas Goodwin, a principal architect of the Cromwellian settlement and contributor to the Savoy Declaration, argued Usher proved the early church taught the divinity of the Son. Chennel's work was published during the period when the assembly met, but Goodwin's posthumously published book was likely prepared well after the assembly met and even after Usher's death. There were, uh, further, a handful of books actually dedicated to Usher by contributors to Westminster. Edward Lee was an MP nominated to serve as a teller whose treatise of divinity has been called one of the more important resources that one could obtain to understand the theology of the Westminster Standards. And he dedicated two books to Usher and even bragged that he was the last one who dedicated a book to that great light of Reformed churches, my Lord of Armagh. He pervasively cited Usher. And if Lee's work is one of the most important works for understanding the assembly, Usher's works are crucial to understanding Lee. John Lay was on the committee to write the confession itself, but also helped lead the committee that examined ministers and ministerial candidates, which means he would have examined Usher when he came back to London. He corresponded with Usher, cited him in several works, and dedicated his 1641 Sunday a Sabbath to him. Further, Joshua Hoyle, an English Presbyterian, with important roles on the committees for the Confession and the larger Catechism, was appointed as representative from Trinity College Dublin to the Assembly, and was one of the most important connections between Usher and the Assembly. He studied at Trinity when Usher was professor there, and, was, and succeeded Usher as professor of theological controversies when Usher left the university to become uh, bishop of Meath. Hoyle made many speeches on the floor of the assembly, and his constant appearance in the Journal of the House of Lords during the years of the assembly shows he was a favorite for conducting their opening prayers. In 1641, he dedicated his book, A Rejoinder to Master Malone's Reply Concerning Real Presence. They were Excellent in their brevity of titles. <laughs> he, he dedicated this book to the most reverend father in God, James Usher, Archbishop of Armagh, Premat and Metropolitan of all Ireland, his grace. The Episcopal terms are notable from Presbyterians, by the way, just the, when they have no reason to, to use them, really. Uh, this book released prior to the assembly, and the high words of praise for Usher show how much he had impressed Hoyle during his studies at Trinity. The work was actually a sequel to Usher's own answer to a Jesuit living in Ireland. I abbreviated that because that one goes on for days, just the title. 
uh, which responded to William Malone's reply to one of Usher's previous books. William Twist, the Assembly's first prolocutor, cited Usher in defense of predestination. And there were far more connections between Usher and Assembly, and we could go through all the books, but for time's sake, I hope that sample serves to show he was a staple citation in the Assembly's works. So then the second section, Echoes of Usher's Works in the Westminster Standards. This section demonstrates that the Westminster Confession included significant portions of the Irish Articles, which, of which Usher was the primary, if not exclusive, author. I know that's debated, but um, there's a rough draft in his handwriting that I found um, that I think settles it. And the larger catechism relied on Usher's body of divinity. I focused here on examples where specific phrases or sections from these works are repeated in the Westminster documents. So, Irish Articles 11. God from all eternity did, by his unchangeable counsel, ordain whatsoever in time should come to pass, yet so as thereby no violence is offered to the wills of the reasonable creatures, and neither the liberty nor the contingency of second causes is taken away, but established, rather. Westminster Confession 3, paragraph 1. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so is whether thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. I apologize for the repetition, but that's sort of the point. (laughs) At the same time. And that repetition is obvious. Again, Irish Articles 8. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom and goodness, the, makes, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this God, had there be three persons of one and the same substance, power, and eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then Westminster Confession 2, paragraph 1 and 3. So there is but one only, living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and righteous will for his own glory. Paragraph 3. In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And uh, they have this tendency to expand on the Irish art. So we'll take things like that, separate it, and elaborate, and you still find the original sentences uh, buried in there. In this instance, it could be objected that the source for this material in the Westminster was the 39 articles. But several factors push against this. Parliament previously tried to use the Irish articles to interpret the 39 articles. And Charles had closed Parliament after a bill had been proposed to give them formal authority alongside the 39 in England. So, not a well-received move. So, Parliament Parliament itself preferred the Irish Articles, and the Assembly was a parliamentary commission. Further, Joshua Hoyle had been a vocal advocate for the Irish Articles when Laud superseded them in Ireland and imposed the 39. And Hoyle served on the Confession Committee. Further, and maybe most decisively, the Scottish Commission had opposed the 39 Articles, basically in general. 
Which is why they had to write a new confession in general, instead of revising the 39 articles. And so that one, perhaps especially, make the Irish articles the more likely source than the 39. Further, the Irish articles were the first Protestant confession, so back to evidence of correspondence, they were the first Protestant confession to mention a covenant with Adam. This was an increasingly common doctrine, but the Irish articles were the first to make it a confessional doctrine. Westminster followed suit. The terms were different, covenant of law versus covenant of works, but Westminster followed the Irish trajectory. The Irish articles were also the first confession to call the Pope the Antichrist, and Westminster copied this as well. Later, later versions of the confession have removed that line. Um, to move to the links between the larger catechism and Usher's body of divinity, commentators have often claimed the divines predominantly used Usher to shape this document. One 17th century author thought the larger catechism was simply a summary of Usher's body. John Downham was the licensor of books for Westminster in the 1640s and on the Assembly's Committee to Examine Ministers. And he published Usher's work in 1645, likely from manuscript versions that Parliament had sequestered and divines could raid, and the, the manuscript versions still exist um, in Usher's collection of papers. Downham also published a pair of briefer catechisms by Usher, again without his permission, but later Usher revised and republished these. Downham and five other Westminster divines had written to Usher to convince him to help produce a full body of divinity. John Dury, who wrote the new prefaces for the 1677 edition of Usher's Body of Divinity, even forged a letter from Usher, so to appear to have the archbishop's support behind the publishing effort uh, for the collective body of divinity. The divine's previous efforts, which also included Downham, to get a theology in print in Usher's name, suggests the 1645 publication of the body was an extension of those efforts. Parliament was growing anxious in 1645 to see progress from the assembly on the catechisms. Work had begun on writing a catechism in 1643, but there were continual setbacks. Perhaps some divines set forward Usher's works to placate impatient onlookers. So whereas young John Owen, famous Puritan divine, worked hard, to publish in synchronization with the Assembly's projects, sorry, the circle of the Assembly itself made sure Usher's catechisms were published whether he liked it or not. So, from the body of divinity. Why is he called Jesus? He's called Jesus, that is, a Savior, because he came to save his people from their sins. From the larger catechism, why was our mediator called Jesus? Our mediator was called Jesus because... He saves his people from their sins, from the body of divinity. What is the sum of the first table of the law? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all the strength, with all thy mind. From the larger catechism, what is the sum of the four commandments which contain our duty to God? The sum of the four commandments containing our duty to God is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. Now, in the second example, I know that the answer itself is not noteworthy because it's simply a quotation of scripture. But the fact that that citation is paired with the same question is, I think, the connection between the two documents. The confession evidenced, as I mentioned, the tendency to expand the Irish articles. And the catechism does this 
as well sort of readjusting material. So whereas Usher wrote, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, most perfect, wise, almighty, and most holy. This was almost certainly the templates, the template the divines used when they wrote, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. <laughs> Another example, though, the larger catechism reads, why was it requisite that the mediator should become man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer to make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow fee feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of son and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, four of the phrases from that sort of shorter paragraph are actually taken from a lengthy page-long answer in Usher's Body of Divinity to the same question. So in this example, they actually rip uh, phrases out and put them into more memorizable uh, paragraphs so that people could digest them instead of long explanations. These instances are a brief example of correspondence that exists between the larger catechism and the body. These, along with the links between the confessions, show a good amount of borrowing from Usher materials. It is not that Usher's works were the only source, or even that they were the main source, but the contextual factors of political background to the Irish article and Downham's publication of the body, linked with external tendency uh, for Westminster divines to cite Usher, makes a strong case apparent borrowing from Usher was in fact actually borrowing from Usher. So last section, Usher's preferential treatment at Westminster. So the Assembly and Parliament's actions further evidence their regard for Usher as far more than just another theologian. In 1642, just before the English Civil War erupted, Usher was appointed Bishop of Carlisle. The 1641 Irish Rebellion exiled him to England, and some apparently want to ensure, wanted to ensure that Usher had provisions. This care for bishops may have been more expected before the Civil War, but Parliament seemed not to lose their concern for Usher even during the war. They had sequestered royalist ministers' libraries, and they let the assembly members use them, but they obliged Usher's request to have his returned, even when he was aligned with Charles in Oxford. And then on 5 October 1647, after Usher returned to London, after Charles had been captured, uh, Parliament voted to pay him four Usher pay Usher four hundred pounds annually, quote in respect of his great worth and learning of his fame abroad, and that he hath written much and is still writing in defense of our religion. They then voted to invite him a second time to the Westminster Assembly, and sent him as an envoy to the king on behalf of Parliament. Further, he did contribute to a revised volume of scriptural annotations that was composed primarily by assembly members in 1655, and his name featured prominently on the title page to announce his involvement. Although this book was not one of the assembly's official documents, Richard Muller has documented its close links to the divine's works, even noting Usher's involvement. Usher's ongoing preaching role further evidences the assembly and parliament's esteem for him. Westminster divines oversaw and approved anyone who would be preaching, and preaching positions were strictly controlled, but Usher 
was appointed to preach in Lincoln's Inn in London by both the House of Commons and House of Lords. The last step after approval to get a preaching license was to preach before the assembly at St. Margaret's Chapel next to Westminster Abbey and receive their vote. In a fascinating twist of history, Oliver Sinjin, an MP who advocated total abolition of episcopacy and was on the committee that judged to execute Charles in 1649, he installed Usher to preach at Lincoln's Inn, which is just really interesting, I think. Uh, there does not seem to have been any other figures treated in quite that elaborate a fashion, and this was likely entirely due to the fact that they were dealing with Archbishop Usher. When the Westminster Assembly commenced, they met in Westminster Abbey's Henry VII Chapel. And in a final show of deference in 1656, Oliver Cromwell insisted that Usher be buried in Westminster Abbey, and he still rests in St. Paul's Chapel there. This chapel, however, is just at the bottom of the stairs to the Henry VII chapel where the assembly began to meet. Usher's grave marks the same relationship he had to the meetings of the assembly in life, present but just outside. In life and in death, Usher was the ghost in the corner of Westminster. Definitive proof will likely remain elusive, but probability indicates Usher as a most likely source for many sections of the Westminster Assembly's doctrine. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.